What does it mean to connect to your future at Lake Michigan College? They connect you to your future opportunities. They partner with local industries and employers, ensuring their programs align to the needs of the community's workforce. Lake Michigan College can help you get to the future you want. Visit lakemichigancollege.edu. Good morning. My name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. This morning's guest on With Respect is Corky Siegel, uh, a legend in the world of blues and uh, and harmonica and piano and just a fascinating guy with a wonderful background. Corky Siegel, With Respect, will be right back. Gorky, how are you this morning? Great. How are you doing, John? I am absolutely fantastic, and it's good talking to you. I, I'm impressed with not only your music, but listening to uh, the various kinds of uh, the wide range of things that you perform, but also your background. So I want to start right off with uh, the question I ask everybody here first off, and that is, where are you from originally? Originally, I am from... Chicago. Uh oh. Now you've got to answer the question, Corky. This is an important question. <laughs> okay. Are you a Sox fan or a Cubs fan? Yes. <laughs> and you're also a politician, I see. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, you then you, you know that I that I've got to be one or the other, and I'm not going to tell you which. But my listeners know who I who I'm for. Well, just like Cubs fans and Sox fans. Politicians will go down with their team. That's exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. Regardless. I have never. Regardless of the American people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've never heard a better response to my que- to that question when I ask people than the one you gave because it is, it is so neat. <laughs> it is so. It settles the issue. Um, where whereabouts in the city were you, were you raised? Originally, the South Side. Good. And then um, I stayed on the South Side. Um, actually, started performing on the South Side while I was living on the South Side in my parents' house. Yeah. And uh, lived with my parents for quite a while, even after I went on the road. Um, it was uh, quite a while before I actually moved moved to the North Side. Mm-hmm. What? Um what about we're in the South Side because we have a lot of Chicago listeners, okay, and um, well, and people out here specifically eighty hundred South. We called it eight thousand in those yep. days. Eight thousand South Euclid Avenue in Euclid was a block west of Jeffrey, which when you run up Jeffrey, it ends up becoming Lakeshore Drive. Corky, you uh, lived, you were raised seven blocks from where I lived. Where'd you live? I lived in Seventy Third and Oglesby. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> so we hung out there. Yep, yeah, we had a that was a great neighborhood. Uh, now we we lived there only a 
a short part of my life, and we moved out. My parents moved out to the suburbs many years, and then I went to school all around the all around the country, and uh, finally settled here in Western Michigan. Uh, oh, and now I'm going to school all around the world. <laughs> all right. When did you get in, interested in music? Uh, I think I always have been interested in music, and actually, to tell you the truth, I think everybody is interested in music. And then some people come along and they try and convince us not to be interested in music. But I was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't listen. Yeah, I, I just remember playing that little spring on the door, the, uh, the door stopper. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just loved that. I just loved it so much. And, you know, in those days when you're just a little one, we don't, and I say we meaning everybody, we don't see a painting. We don't hear music. We go inside the painting, and we play inside the painting, and we go inside the experience of music and play in the experience of music. So we just go in there. You know, it's nonverbal. It's just an experience, and it's deep and profound and uh, completely um, uplifting. And then I think at some point we try and decide whether it's good or not, and that's when we start going downhill. So, you know, I've spent a lifetime trying to uh, get that back, you know, get that perfect experience back. Is this, is this why when I was younger, um, I, I, I know what you're saying about living inside the music. I do know about that because it was an all-enveloping thing. If I'd listened to whether it was uh, a nursery rhyme or, or something on a, a record that my parents would be playing, uh, you lose yourself into it. Right. And, and then when it came to words, I think it was so much easier when I was younger now, I don't think this is just my senile uh, stretch I've had in the last 50 years, but um, I remembered words more easily. And they and when I started to when I listen to an old song and I start to sing it, um, I, I have that same ability to kind of shut everything else out. Wow, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I, of course, to change the language a little bit, we, we say we lose ourselves in the music. I like saying we find ourselves in the music. Okay. And then when we experience something similar again, uh, we call it nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And it has a great, great power to pull us back into that place. And, and so, you know, when we're little, we don't really have the, the advantage of uh, that kind of nostalgia because everything we're hearing is pretty much for the first time. Mm -hmm. when, we're, when we're older, of course, and we hear something that we heard when we were young, and we had that very deep experience of finding ourselves in this music, in the experience of the music, we get this thing we call nostalgia. And what, what's really amazing <laughs> to me is the power of nostalgia. So people, some people just aren't going to be able to relate or, or love a piece of music unless there's that nostalgia in it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be the exact same piece, but there could be familiar little melodies or familiar instrument or familiar sonic experience that just pulls you right in there. So it's really quite amazing. And 
And I, I, when people say, how come they don't write the songs like they used to? <laughs> and I say, because they can't. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it has no, you know, it has no nostalgia in it. So anyway, well, the, I got off the track there. Well, that's all right. That, that's, uh, the doorstop was the first sound we, we <coughs> talked about uh, and the twang. Yeah, the first instrument. I think my first instrument. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, what after that? I mean, I I know that you're not playing doorstops these days, but it's. Well, I am a little bit, especially you? at the Acorn coming up. I'm going to do a doorstop piece. Well, let's talk about that. You're Just gonna one. Be, we're going to be coming to. You're going to be coming to the Acorn on uh, Saturday, September 10th, mm -hmm. eight o'clock mm -hmm. p.m. And it's going to be a solo show, but you've got somebody with you going to be seven solo shows. Okay. <laughs> now it's going to be <coughs> my chamber blues ensemble. Oh, the whole, oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, it's chamber blues, and it, it's chamber blues just essentially is a juxtaposition of blues and classical, where both blues and classical are happening at the, happening at the same time, but they both maintain their character. And of course, there's a whole spectrum of possibilities where the string quartet and the East Indian tabla blues piano and blues harmonica become more of a blues band and that happens now and again and then there's times when it becomes more of a completely classical ensemble but the most fun for me well of course doing it all is the most fun for me but the mo if I were to p p pick out particular works that I've written the, the ones that I, I, I love hearing or doing or experiencing are the ones where you can hear the classical and the blues actually living with each other, not blending, and uh, complementing each other in very unusual <laughs> ways. I just I love it. And the interesting thing about chamber blues is it's extremely tonal music for the most part. I mean, I use triads, which are hardly used in music anymore because we've, we've gone so far. Mm -hmm. and, and when you hear me use a chord extension like a, sub, a ninth, mm -hmm. it's like, wow, you want to jump out of your chair because it's like shocking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. within this concept of this very tonal, simple music that, that we present, I mean, it's not simple, it's very complex in terms of a lot of, you know, a lot of things that are going on, but in terms of the harmonic structure of it, it tends to be pretty simply put forward. In the context of a whole show of, of this very tonal music, we're doing one piece that is actually an improvisation. That is the doorstop piece, where it's, it's more, more sound than it is melody. Mm -hmm. um, Twelve-tone, atonal uh, explorations. But it only lasts four minutes. And... Strangely enough, the times that I haven't done this, this, this work or anything like it in a long time. But when I've done it, it's been people's favorite piece. <laughs> really? That's interesting. <laughs> you know, we're, we're used to, correct me if I'm wrong, we're used to it. Uh, the, the common uh, scale is an eight-tone scale. And when you're talking a 12-tone scale, it's, it's, it is, by itself, is, is different. Am I... Am I uh, Except we're more used to a 12-tone. Are we? For, yeah, if we're listening to uh, a lot of classical music, the, the progressive uh, and modern classical music use uh, 
used um, the twelve tone scale as opposed to the eight tone, mm -hmm. uh, which made it just sound a little bit strange. And then they went to atonal, which has no tonal center, which the idea is to try and pull yourself away from that not only eight tone, but even the even using the twelve tone, you want to not try and feel like you're using any scale. And, and you try real hard to pull yourself away from, from that tonal center. And uh, we're, you know, pretty much used, used to that uh, to some degree. And we, we hear it, too, in, in modern jazz and progressive jazz and the like. So it's not that we're, you know, we're, we're not completely unfamiliar with it. But it doesn't mean that we get that nostalgic experience. What do you, Corky, what do you mean by <laughs> From pull? some of it, but. Yeah, what do you uh, mean, uh, Corky, when you say pull away? We're trying to pull away. What do you mm -hmm. mean by that? Oh, pull away. Hop in the car and drive. No, no. no. Let's okay. see. Um, and leave it behind. <laughs> uh, uh, by that, you're saying this is so, this is so, it grabs you in strange ways and you just want to get away. Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Okay. Let, me, let, me, let me rephrase that. As a composer, uh, when you're writing the music mm -hmm. and you and you want to write something really progressive, really unique, and really modern, one way of doing it is trying to completely get away of the the very very common uh, uses of um, the the eight tone scale or even oh. the twelve tone scale and the harmonies that 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 follows. So you try and do things really that one may call insane or crazy. Mm -hmm. However, um, just maybe to get off the track of your question a little bit, um, what, what I find is, for myself, is I, I don't tr try and do that specifically when, when I write. What I try and do is try and find out what, what my heart, what my cells, what, what every part of my body feels good about and what's going to make me happy and what's going to make me experience joy and passion and all those things and that's what I write and I, I don't think about whether it's in the box or mm -hmm. outside mm -hmm. of the box. In fact, I don't think the box is really even relevant. I think what's more relevant is if, you're, if you can find who you are and what you do and follow through with your individuality, your mind and your body then is connected to what you're doing very intimately, but if you try to do something, quote, different, or if you try to do something uh, original, or if you try to do something like other things, or if you try to do something that's popular, or if you try to do something that's this or that, you're sort of uh, projecting outside of yourself, and you may not be as connected to that uh, composition or performance uh, as you would if you just went with your heart and let's go with what you feel so I'm just that's what I've been trying to do and to tell you the truth it's been very very difficult but extremely rewarding mm -hmm. <laughs> we're talking to Corky Siegel uh, he is a chamber blues and all different kinds of blues musician he'll be at the Acorn Theater on Saturday the 10th of September at 8 p.m. and will be performing with the chamber blues orchestra or, pardon me, group. We'll be right back.
We're now back with Corky Siegel, a blues musician for of, of many years, and coming with the Chamber Blues Orchestra. I keep saying orchestra. Why? That's okay. <laughs> because I, I, I'll tell you why in a minute. But anyway, he'll be here on, on September 10th uh, at 8 p.m. at the Acorn Theater. All right, now I'm going to tell you what it was, Kirky. I keep saying orchestra because uh, one of the pieces that I, I listened to on uh, YouTube of yours was a piece that you did um, with an orchestra. Uh, your, your group, or two or three of your group, were... Um, uh, performing with an or a full-blown symphony orchestra, and I, I, when you talk about coming in and out of the classical mode, the blues mode, and whatever else you've got there, uh, it was a fascinating thing to listen. So, and I've got that orchestra concept, which is what I want to talk to you about anyway. And by How the way, you should know that piece uh, is was written by William Russo for Siegel Schwal. Uh, because of Seiji Ozawa's, my meeting with him in 1966. Where were you in 1966? I know. And, <laughs> and, and then um, uh, it was, uh, so it, from 1966, it was finished in 1968, was first performed with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in 1968, and then, you know, went on from there, uh, invitations from, from the major symphonies all over the world and recordings on Deutsche Grammophon and everything. So... That's where, that's where you heard that piece, and that's why you call Chamber Blues an orchestra. And yeah. it's fine to call it an orchestra. Uh, I think one of the things that define a chamber group is that every instrument has its own part. Where orchestras, there's a lot of doubling. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Of, of parts, I think that's what defines it. But I don't care. I mean, I call it the Chamber Blues Band. I call it Chamber Blues, the Chamber Blues Ensemble. I even call it a quartet, and there's six of us. I constantly find myself calling it a quartet when, when there's six people in the group. So, And <clears throat> the other thing that I just realized uh, during the break, I was thinking about it, in answering your questions, uh, there, there's a little bit of confusion because I, I'm a composer mm -hmm. and a performer. Mm -hmm. And mostly I'm answering your questions as a composer, but sometimes then I switch over to the performer hat. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it, it creates. So I just wanted to clarify that 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 you know the the, the main thing that I do uh, in in uh, in music is I'm a composer, and I uh, compose this juxtaposition of blues and classical. But I'm also I'm actually more known as a performer. So walk I, me through. <laughs> walk us through from uh, the twang of the doorstop uh, to. This, the Siegel Schwal band. Mm -hmm. how, how, did, how, did you, how did that all get going? I mean, did you take formal well, courses you know, I, in I, music? I love music like anybody else. And yeah. I started trying to learn to play music, and I took some lessons on the clarinet and other things. And <coughs> what happened was in, in, I was studying uh, classical music at Roosevelt University and jazz classical saxophone, tenor saxophone classical. And uh, also, I was trying to learn jazz on a saxophone. And my whole world of the spring was not just he hearing and listening to the spring and, 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 be and going inside the sound, 
but also the physical expression of plucking the spring. Mm-hmm. The physical expression of plucking it and feeling the vibrations and just getting sucked into that sound. So there was something that I got caught, caught on to really, really well, uh, which was this concept of expression. And when I was learning jazz and classical, I was thinking, this is going to take me 10 years before I can really, really, really imbibe this material Mm -hmm. and then express myself through it in a very natural and powerful way. And I just did not want to wait. You know, there's a story of this violinist who was practicing, and he would just practice one note over and over, one note over and over. And, and his wife said, you know, John, you know, why are you just playing this one note over and over? Our neighbor next door, you know, um, uh, Bella, he, he, you know, he's playing all over the violin. And John said, well, yeah, he's, he's still looking for his note. I've already found mine. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my story is sort of like that. I, I, when I when I discovered the blues, um, that's when I sort of got back into the expression of the little spring on the door. The the blues structurally is is simple. You know, it, it's not really any simpler than any other form of music, but the structure itself is is simple and basic, and it allowed me to go in there and play a simple pattern, rhythm pattern, over and over and over and over, and find ways of expressing it and get deeper and deeper and deeper into that experience. And I was driving my parents nuts because I was playing like the same thing over and over. But, you know, after doing it, I was laughing and crying and just, oh, man, the goosebumps. It was just unbelievable, and I was just playing this one little phrase. And basically, that's how I pursued music from that point on, is I I wanted the experience of expression first. Then I would learn some new things, and then I would bring them in, and then I would work on those, and then I would want to feel the expression in that. And my whole development of music was based on looking for the expressive experience immediately without having to wait. And all my compositions and everything I do and everything I offer and every breath that I take that has to do with music is about where's the expression, where's the joy. And it doesn't matter what kind of music it is or how it's written or how it's played. I'm looking for the expression. <laughs> All right, let's let me go with that. What you know, you keep, you've repeated this the concept of joy or happiness um, three or four times, mm-hmm. uh, and I've talked to people on this show and elsewhere, musicians who um, who are fairly tortured, and they're, what they're trying to express or the experience they've got going inside of them is a fairly um, Sad, uh, uh, n- not just sad in the sense of, uh, of uh, blues can be sad or uh, you know the, the moody uh, sound, but just they are they're angst. They have 
anger or whatever. You don't you don't talk that way. Well, I think it's a, I think it's, um, I, I, it's it's a perspective that I don't think is really true or or um, or healthy. Certainly not healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, if you think about something extremely horrible and sad, and you're going to now sing about it, and you furl your brow, and your eyes roll up in your head, what, what would you call that feeling sad? It, 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 it's deeper than sad. Yeah, it's it, it miserable. It goes into the realm of what I call passion that really has no sadness. Or it's not about sadness, it's not about happiness. It's just this incredible expression, and that's why you use the word joy. Because joy doesn't necessarily... It just, joy is just this, this feeling of, of being uplifted. And certainly if you're very, very sad or very, very angry, music is a wonderful... Performing music is a wonderful way of being uplifted out of that, which is the whole concept of the blues. Is these people were so suffocated, and there was nothing they could really do. And when they played the music, it made them feel better. And, and so it's a little bit of a misnomer that blues is sad music. It certainly came out of sad times. Mm-hmm. But if, I, I don't remember who it was, if it was B.B. King that said, hey, if our music was so sad, how come everyone's dancing too much? (laughs) 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 Now, of course, there's the torch music that's specifically supposed to be sad music. The topic is sad, you know. But anyway, that's just it. I just think when people talk about emotion in music, I'd actually rather use the word expression and keep it more generic and and not say that, that, you know, that you're expressing sad or happy or this or that. You're just being very expressive and very deep and very passionate and very joyful. <laughs> well, you know, you're, this, is, this is fascinating because uh, I had not ever studied the, the derivation uh, in a formal sense of the blues, but I just sort of accepted the uh, I suppose the very superficial uh, statements that I might have heard, uh, offhanded statements that it's. I've heard yes, it is an expression of um, the difficult times that people lived in, African Americans, whoever. Um, but I thought of it only as an expression of sadness. Well, and, you and know, I'm not an expert in this. And, I'm not the expert, but think about some of the lyrics and some of the blues songs. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, Hoy Hoy, I'm the boy, 300 pounds of muscle and joy. <laughs> you know, come on, baby, help me to spend some gold. I'm all dressed up. Yeah. Got no place to go. Uh, you know, I'm going to lay my head on some lonesome railroad track, and when that train starts coming, you know, I'm going to jump right back. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah, and you're laughing. And so, <laughs> so there's a lot of that... Um, tongue-in-cheek, you know, with the blues. And um, anyway, like is I say, I'm not an expert on, on the subject. Okay, but is it the sound that makes blues the blues? Or is it, it's, it's certainly not the words, because you've just pointed out that the mm-hmm. blues can be, the lyrics can be funny, they can be sad, whatever. Uh, but what is it that makes the blues the blues? 
Well, you know, it just really depends. I know this is a circular answer. It really depends on how it's defined. (laughs) (laughs) We could define the blues in many ways. We could define it purely historically, which means that for the most part, it has to be an African-American person playing this music for this reason in this way. Or we could define it in purely technical musical terms that there's a scale that is common to the blues. And when you use that scale, you're playing blues, which makes Gershwin a blues musician. No one would have thought of him as a blues musician, maybe a jazz musician, but certainly not a blues musician. So, you know, it <coughs> and then there's all the definitions in between and and um so uh, which reminds me of a story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that <coughs> Charlie Musselwhite, the blues harmonica player, my buddy, um, just came up with this amazing quote. He was being interviewed on a radio show. And he was uh playing music with a Mexican group. And you know, I, I was interested in this because not only am I playing in a non-blues group, but I'm composing the music (laughs) also. (laughs) So he was just simply, innocently, just saying, oh, I'm going to play the blues with this Mexican group. And the the radio interviewer said, well, Charlie, but that's not being true to the blues. And Charlie said, what are you talking about? And the guy says, well, you know, the tradition, the tradition, the blues tradition should be true to the blues tradition. And Charlie said, what do you mean tradition? When you say tradition, isn't the tradition change? Isn't the tradition change? Because if the tradition weren't change, we'd all still be beating on logs. (laughs) 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 So, you know, it's like like things are moving too fast to try and nail everything down. (laughs) I mean, it's fun to try and name things and say, this is the blues, this isn't the blues. You know, but things are moving pretty fast. <laughs> well, we're going to take a break now, but uh, when we get back, uh, I want to focus on uh, the kinds of music you're going to be playing on Saturday the tenth, okay. uh, the tenth, and um, and and also a little bit more of how the change in your uh, your appreciation of music and your experience of music uh, produce has produced a different, almost a different genre from. As you just said, uh, uh, those people who say, well, no, you just have to be an African-American. You have to sing about uh, your sadness, and that's the blues. But you're talking about something else. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, but I I do want to talk about the types of music you're going to be performing and maybe get a little example. We're talking to Corky Siegel, uh, Chamber Blues, and the Chamber Blues Band or Orchestra. It's a tremendous sound and a a most interesting uh, person performing. We'll be right back.
now back with Corky Siegel, who's going to be performing Chamber Blues at the Acorn Theater on Saturday the 10th of September at 8 p.m. Corky, what kind of uh, pieces are you going to be performing? Well, uh, there's a certain type of piece, which we call opus, and I, I've named the pieces opus like 14, 15, 16, 17, uh, Opus 24, things like that. Anyway, those pieces are, are cl uh, compositionally uh, classical pieces that, again, juxtapose blues and classical. It would be as if <coughs> a composer, let, let's just say Mozart, heard a blues musician on the street and fell in love. And I would guess that if Mozart heard a blues musician on the street, he would fall in love with it. <laughs> <laughs> so he'd say, hey, why don't you come and play with um, this, this string quartet? I'll write some music to, to find ways of bringing your music into what I'm doing without really changing what I'm doing and without changing what you're doing, but just having this marriage so that we really get to have fun together, you finding ways of working this blues idiom into this classical idiom and all the possible ways that it could work, the infinite amazing ways it could work. Basically, that's what, what that is, except the blues musician is me and the composer is me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when I compose, I compose as uh, someone who thinks he's a classical composer which uh, is a great advantage because I don't know any of the shortcuts. Well, so sometimes the stuff that comes out is, is pretty wild. I don't know that it's wild. It just sounds normal to me. But, but um, because I don't know the shortcuts and I don't know the rules of writing classical music, and uh, all my classical music that's in my head is just based on, you know, a lot of stuff that I've heard mm -hmm. without really studying it so much, just mm -hmm. sort of hearing it. And then saying, okay, this is the kind of thing classical music does. This is the direction it goes. This is the sparkling joy it has to offer. And then I find out how could we, you know, put that side by side with the uh, expressive, emotional, uh, melodic concepts of the blues. And blues is very linear, very melodic. Uh, the, the harmonic structure of blues is more coincidental to the melodies that are being played. It's not like the, the harmonies and the harmonics are planned out. They just sort of happen. And classical music is very, very vertical. You could look at any place during a piece of classical music, and you could say, here's where it came from harmonically, and here's where it's going. And, and here you could see the intention <coughs> in the harmonic lines. Uh, so you have these two different ways of composing music and you bring them together and it's quite, quite, quite amazing. And people say, Corky, how do you do it? <laughs> and I say, I don't do anything. <laughs> the music does it. <laughs> and, and, you know, someday some composers are going to catch on to, to this because right now I'm the only guy that's doing it, which I'm very surprised about. You know, when William Russo wrote those first two pieces for me, we all thought, Sagey and Bill and I all thought, man, this is going to just take off. And certainly there's been some experimentation, but 
there's really nobody around who's who's devoted a career to juxtaposing blues and classical. And uh, so right now it's dirty work, but somebody's got to do it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you you mentioned you have an Indian instrument in your in your group. Oh yeah, I didn't want to be too normal. <laughs> How did that get wound in? Because we've had it. Well, we start with the doorstop, and we're ending well, up. When with I was writing the music, I knew that at some point I wanted to actually add in some kind of percussion. I knew it wasn't going to be drums, and there were a number of reasons. The drums are not—they're—they're they're little more than a chamber instrument because of, of the of the volume. And I thought, well, maybe I could get a quiet set of drums, but I didn't want to do that because, again, that was the trap sets. You know, are are one of the main instruments and. In, in popular music, and I really wanted to offer something different. So I, I, I really love the wooden, the natural wooden sound. This is, when I was writing this, it started in 80, 1983, I had just written a whole bunch of symphonic music, and really, really, you know, was, it was just overbearing writing this stuff. And uh, so that's when I got the idea for Chamber Blues. And so... Um, <laughs> well, the piece the piece that that I saw on the YouTube, um, I watched, I watched the uh, director and I watched the orchestra uh, while they were while you were your group, your part of this uh, was performing, and there was one fellow there who had his hand on his on a on a stand or something. He was his elbow on a stand. And he was it was like. I, w- I want to do something here. I want to do something here, but I'm not doing anything yet. And and I also then they cl- they cut to a percussionist, um, and I thought, well, now we're g- but where's his percussionist? Where's his? You just told me that you don't have one. Right. So my percu- my percussion is a tabla player, where um, the, you know there was this wooden again. It was at the time of synthesizers, and, and I really felt the string quartet was offering something very, you know alternative mm-hmm. in those days because everything was synthesized and then the, ta- the tabla was a perfect uh, uh, pairing because it has this little wooden wooden sound almost like different kinds of pizzicatos so it fit very very well into the string quartet setting and, mm-hmm. and that's how I ended up using the Indian tabla because I thought it was a perfect instrument for string quartet mm-hmm. did you go to India I did go recently. I, I, I toured for a month with um, Dr. L. Subramaniam. The uh, um, they call him the uh, what do they call him, Holly? What's the Paganini of the Indian violin, hmm. and uh, also Ernie Watts, the jazz saxophone player. And 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 Dr. L. Subramaniam has a project called Global Fusion, where he actually brings. Um, jazz music into Indian music uh, and, and juxtaposes those. And uh, I bring in, and, and he's invited me many times, and I, I, I am the one who brings in the blues element mm-hmm. into the global fusion. When you, when you are, you, you compose blues music, yes? Yes. You composed, in, if not be, now, at least in the past, you composed classical music, right? Well, I guess I'm I'm composing classical music. I'm writing for symphonies and chamber groups. Okay. Now, if I was to uh, attend one of your sessions, when you when you introduce a new piece uh-huh. 
to your group, all right? Something you've composed, which is blues. Mm -hmm. Am I going to find you with uh, a, a full set of sheet music for each one of them in which all the parts are, are described, or am I going to find what? What am I going to find? Well, mostly you're going to find, you know, the sheet music with everything uh, described. The only thing is I'm a little more flexible because when you have your own group, uh, I don't, there's some of the things I don't write in, uh, some of the bowings and some of the articulations. We, we, uh, we take care of that during the rehearsal. Uh, I could go ahead and write them in, but then when we hear it, we may want to change it. So I figure instead of going to the trouble of writing them in, we're going to just, you know, see how it works. But everything's written out. Um, I could always change it. You know, I just recently wrote a symphonic work that I've been touring with all over the world. It's a 30-minute piece. And uh, th there is no improvisation at all in it. It's, it's completely written out. But in, now in my chamber group, the, the players are, are uh, more and more uh, learning how to improvise. And, and in fact, I would say at least two of them right now are, uh, I would say they're, they, they're improvisers. I could just throw something at them and they'll improvise and actually do an amazing job. Mm -hmm. In fact, <laughs> instead of, uh, you know, if I have like a Raelian, our first violinist, play a blues solo, he'll play it in a classical style rather than in a blues style. It's pretty, <laughs> just, it's amazing how he picked up on that. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. it's, it's just quite... Uh, but this is, is this con uh, contrary to what... Uh, we have come to expect as jam sessions for jazz where uh -huh. it seems that everybody improvises to their heart's content until they somehow everybody has had a chance to improvise and then they come to a, a coda. Right. Um, is that correct? Well, yeah. The, you know, they call it, they play the head of the piece. You know, there's the basic melody and, the, and then they all start improvising and then they go back to the, uh, they recapitulate on the, uh, on the original melody. The main theme. But, you know, uh, the concept of improvisation is, I think there's a, there's a, a different perspective in, in that also. Um, and that is that when we think of improvisation, we think of just the melody and the rhythm as the main focus of the improvisation. But I really feel that all musicians improvise all the time uh, with, uh, with the other elements of music, with the dynamics, with the articulation, with the tonal variation. They could play a piece by Mozart and completely improvise because they're expressing themselves through the way they approach the pitch. You know, the, you, there is no th thing of hitting the pitch absolutely on. Sometimes you want to approach a pitch a little low mm -hmm. or a little high, and, and you know, to express something harmonically or to catch people's to attention. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, it's it's your when when they. When you come in a little bit of low and a little bit high, you're catching people's attention subconsciously. They're saying, whoop, 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 that wasn't quite what I was expecting. Right. You, you, what, what, you know, to me, you know, the description of a musical master, and, you know, I could think of Segovia or Yo-Yo Ma, you know, th there's a lot of musical masters. There's, there's players who can, as, a, as an expression, a spontaneous expression, vary each of the musical elements. So, again, varying the pitch, varying the rhythm, varying the articulation, varying the tonal, uh, the dynamics, you know, all of those.
playing a classical piece of music that still sounds like the classical piece of music, but but putting their own individuality and expression into it, um, to me, is a form of improvisation that's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even more important than changing the notes or the rhythms. Well, you, you've said that you perform Opus 14, 16, 24, etc. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, like there's the opuses, and the, and the purpose of the opuses is to try to pretty much juxtapose the two forms hitting the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's other pieces that are way, way blues uh, that even include vocals that still try and keep a remnant of, of the classical feel. Uh, and then there's pieces that go the other end, which I actually still call those opuses, too, which are just p- purely classical pieces of music that utilize the blues form. But but uh, the, the string quartet in no way is a blues band. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's this whole spectrum of possibilities. And, you know, we, we offer that at the show. And, you know, this time Sue Demo is our guest singer artist tell us about her yeah so she's uh, this amazing player she plays with the sons of the never wrong that i feel um are are the greatest folk ensemble one could ever hear uh (coughs) incredibly spontaneous and expressive and fun and i i I sort of think think of them uh, uh, as the uh modern day peter paul and mary you know, taking Peter, Paul, and Mary and, uh, and, and sort of outdoing what they did, uh, both uh, artistically, uh, enthusiastically, and expressively, which is sort of hard to imagine if you were a fan of Peter, Paul, and Mary, to think <laughs> someone could be more enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> but these guys are. They're amazing. So Sue Demmel is, is one of the three in the group, and uh, she's coming to sing with us, do a few tunes with us um, on, the, on September 10th, and uh, we got some arrangements for her that we did. We're doing this this sort of R&B piece written by a friend of mine called, her name's Dorothy Scott, and she, the tune is, up, is called Peace Within. It's just such a beautiful tune, and Sue's going to do that, and we're going to do I'll Fly Away, a, a blues shuffle version of I'll Fly Away. I love that song. Uh, and we're going to do um, a piece that Marcy, Marcy Levy did with us when we played the Acorn last time. Marcy is the one that wrote Lay Down Sally and toured with Eric Clapton and Aretha Franklin and yeah. had a major hit with Shakespeare's sister. Yeah. Um, so she came and sang with us uh, a while back, and we did a piece uh, by Solomon Burke, an R&B tune, of course a chamber blues arrangement of it, called Cry to Me. So Sue's going to do that, and she's got really an unusual arrangement. Now we're doing an avant-garde, that avant-garde improvisation piece I may have talked about previously, and we're doing it to a movie, a uh, three-minute movie by this guy, Ed M. Schwiller, a very avant-garde movie written in the 60s. So that should be fun. Wild. Wild. We're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Corky Siegel, uh, Chambers Blues, bringing him together juxtaposing them and bringing us along with him. We'll be right back.
now back with Corky Siegel, who will be performing at the Acorn Theater here in Three Oaks. He'll be performing on September 10th at 8 p.m. And he'll have a, a, a pretty wide range of types of music that he has composed and he has uh, uh, brought his, his group together and is now bringing in uh, a folk singer to be a part of this ensemble. And uh, it sounds like an absolutely fascinating evening. Uh, do you do you do folk also? <laughs> well, you know, uh, first of all, you know, I started out blues with the Blues Masters in Chicago in the early '60s, and then formed Siegel Schwal, which is known as a blues band. Yes. And then I uh, uh, Siegel Schwal took a sabbatical, and I went, as I say, solo, and, uh-huh. and um, that was sort of the singer-songwriter scare. My, uh, where I, you know, I was really a folk singer. I was really singing and writing a lot of songs. Yeah. I wrote a hundred songs, I think, in that period. And then, um, uh, so, and Siegel Schwal also played the folk scene, but I also played the jazz scene and this and that. So it was really hard to say that, uh, that I'm a folk singer, but I did have some experiences. And, and, and hey, some of my best friends are folk singers. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I want to tell you, there's a song that has has stuck in my head the last week. Uh And it's, uh, I thought it was something, it's performed by an Irish group, I thought. Um, It's Hard Times Come Around No More. I don't know if you remember that song. It's Uh a Stephen Foster song, I found out. It is, I I can't get it out of my head. And it it turns out that uh, Bruce Springsteen and... Uh, a couple of Irish bands, uh, uh, groups, I'm sorry, and it looks like a chamber group. I, one of the Irish groups uh, performed with the chamber orchestra and sang, mm-hmm. sang the song. It just, it's, it's perfect for the times that we're in, which is uh, economic recession and, and sorrow and, 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 and stress that is on people's lives. Um, the reason I bring it up at this time is because it's a... The way it is performed, it is it really hits the times. And you talk, you are a folk singer. Uh, you perform folk music, and you talk about Peter, Paul, and Mary. And a good friend of mine was uh, Steve Trott, who was in the uh, the high, the original Highwayman. Ah. Uh, and uh, listening to him and and remembering those days, it's amazing to me how a genre of music can hit at the right time and it becomes the expression of the times or a song mm-hmm. um, and I listened to your music and I thought you know this is a good time for that genre of music but you've been doing it for I, I, <laughs> all right how many years come on Karki well the first time I started talking to Seiji about this and it was his idea yeah. and his fault um, it was 1966 all and right. like I say, we finished the first piece in 1968, and with William Russo was the composer. That sounds like it's about 43 years, Corky. Yeah. And people have been telling me constantly that my time has come. Yeah. <laughs> but what they didn't know, it was already there. <laughs> 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 that my time is coming. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know. Why do uh, you keep... All right, stop for a minute. Corky, why do you keep this up? Why? I mean, you... You have got to have performed how many thousands of times? 
How many thousands? Yeah, exactly. How do you keep fresh? Why do you keep doing it? Uh, what is it about this this world of music making and composing and performing before live audiences or microphones? What keeps you going? Well, when you realize that you pull back on the doorstop, the sprung, the spring doorstop, and in that experience you find yourself. And then every time you experience something like that, you keep finding yourself. It's, uh, there, there's nothing like it in the world, and, and music really, really offers that. And um, there's no way I, I, I can stop. And, you know, in, in understanding the importance of expression in, in this experience, I actually studied expression. I contemplated it. I experimented with it. I experimented with the students. And I eventually found a, sh a, a path, a short and simple and accessible path to expression. Uh, that I utilize in, in my performances and in my writing, and it just makes, I could play the same piece a thousand times, the exact same piece a thousand times, and never get tired of it, because I found a way of keeping it spontaneous no matter what, and keeping it fresh, and keeping it feeling like it's the first time I ever played it. And it has nothing to do so much with uh, improvising the melody or the rhythm. It has to do with it, you know. Um, Your soul. Varying. Well, well, it's a, well, that's true, but, you know, what I wanted to do when people said, well, you know, it, it's a, I said, well, you know what, it's a feel thing. It's a feel thing. It's the soul. Either you got it or you don't. And I wouldn't accept that. I, I, that was just, you know, like you said in the beginning of our conversation, you know, that's a standard uh, you know, statement, and mm -hmm. you tend to believe those. But I, I always, when I heard the standard statement, just a automatically considered the opposite. So many times I found out the opposite was more true <laughs> than the standard. <laughs> so I just, <clears throat> I just found that um, a very, very mechanical... I mean, actually, I wrote a book about it. The book is, is on my website, and it's called Let Your Music Soar, and it's about the importance of dynamic, the dynamic element in music, uh, that is so, so important. I mean, everyone knows it's important, but what I've found in my 40 years of doing master classes all over the world is I, so few people realize how profoundly important it really is and, and, and allowing us to steep ourselves in the experience of music mm -hmm. and keep it spontaneous and fun. Well, before we run out of time, Corky, I'd like you to give us an example. Can you, can you, uh, uh, do you have an instrument there that you could give us an idea of what we're talking yeah. about and what the audience might hear? Okay, well, I'll give you a quick example of the, the expressive technique. Okay. Using dynamics, so. And then, uh, rather than putting the phone down and talking again, I'll just keep playing for a little bit. And, um. And I will I will segue out 
and uh, thank you very much for your time. It's been a fascinating discussion with you, and I hope that everybody gets a chance to to see you in person at uh, the Acorn Theater, Three Oaks, Saturday the 10th of September at 8 p.m. Thank you, Corky. So I'm going to give you an example of no dynamics, and Mm -hmm. then I'm going to add dynamics, and you should notice the change in expression without changing anything else, and then I'll just continue on. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you, Corky Siegel. Remember, September 10th, 8 p.m., Acorn Theater. And remember, the name of our show is With Respect. We're on every Sunday morning at 11 and every Thursday morning at 10. Until then, remember, our theme is this. If you show respect to other people, other people will show respect to you. Thank you, John. Thank you very much, Corky.